Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cody's Car Conundrum. I'm your host, Cody Wagner. No duh, right? Here we discuss everything from car news, culture, movies, stories, games, interviews, events, and so much more. Without further delay, on with the show. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to today's Sunday special. Today is not a very happy episode, but one I think you all should hear because it's important. It's for it regards a place that I think many of us have wanted to go to in our lives, for those of us who haven't gone already. This is a Road and Track article about the Bonneville Salt Flats, and it's really, it seems pretty sad from what I've skimmed. So, get your tissue boxes out. Can racing save its most hallowed temple of speed? Save the Bonneville Salt Flats. This article was written on Road and Track by Kyle Kennard on April 1st, 2021. Oh no. I doubt it's an April Fool's joke, but it... It going up on that day is not it does not give me a lot of confidence, but we'll read on. Bonneville is holy ground for the Speed Freak, a flat stretch of ash white earth running underfoot for more than twelve miles. Eons of circumstance built this race course on Utah's western edge. Speed Week has called it home since nineteen forty nine, and with good reason. Bonneville's a rare spot where humanity might stare risk in the eyes, skirting safety and sanity to hang it out way past the edge, strapped to one 200-plus mile-power rocket car or another. Here, the horizon is the only obstacle to outright speed. For now, that is. Speedway has become increasingly threatened over the past decade, canceling in both 2014 and 2015. Those minuscule grains of salt that faithfully bubble forth and harden into God's own runway are disappearing. Literally. Racers once counted on a salt surface nearly three feet thick to keep their tires from breaking into the flat's muddy underbelly. Now, in some places, the salt is no thicker than a golf tee is tall. Where's the salt line crust going, and why? To know Bonneville's present, consider its past. 14,000 years ago, when human wanderers first visited, they'd have seen something very different, an expanse of water. Earlier still, the lake was an inland ocean as big as Lake Superior. Before that, the region was teeming with life. Remnants of those old bones litter Bonneville. Layers of fossilized shells and ancient high-water marks etch the mountainous rims of these flats, whispering tales of a sinking waterline, one that is now far below Bonneville's surface. Each winter, flooding draws, flooding draws salt from the ground. Warm spring recaptures the water, leaving a flat crust. But that seasonal clockwork is unreliable now. Racers enjoy fewer chances to stretch their nerves on the flats as the salt surface thins year to year. Some blame intrepid, intrepid potash. A Denver outfit, oh god no, Colorado don't do this to me! A Denver outfit that mines the salt slurry potash underground just miles from Bonneville. Potash mining here produces salt water as a waste product. In recent years, Intrepid started pumping it back onto the flats, a last-ditch solve for the ailing salt surface. Many blame the Bureau of Land Management, or <laughs> a different kind of BLM, which allows potash mining to continue so close to a delicate ecosystem. Others point to the racers, who degrade the surface annually. It might even be fate. Search Bonneville's natural history, and you'll note change as the only constant. The water table was failing long before the rocket-powered cars arrived. Some research suggests that some research suggests that, that this was inevitable, accelerated 
by the broader machinations of climate change and more direct human intervention. Whomever you ask, you'll hear the equivalent of, it's complicated. Racers are the ones actually leading the charge to save Bonneville. Save the salt, a grassroots effort run by Landspeed record enthusiasts, is urging Utah lawmakers, the BLM, the Department of the Interior, and every other relevant arm of the government to preserve Bonneville, ensuring the salt's future for all. So far, they've helped pull in millions of dollars to rehabilitate the flats, with further funding on the table. Their concerted efforts offer a stark contrast to the crisis of the vanishing salt. Hope. Well, considering that article was so short that we've ended up at the five-minute mark, let's read another article from Road and Track. This time, though, it talks about an Irish-American sports car. It reminds me of the... Oh, oh, I can't even remember the name of it now. Give me a second. All right, I found the name of it. It's... I found the name of the other car, the Scarab. It reminds me a lot of the Scarab. If you, if you know what a Scarab is, it's basically that. Like, it's not even that different at all. Anyway, let's move on to the article and get into the article. The Irish-American sports car that should have beaten the world. Engineered in Ireland and styled in California, the Devon SS perfected the Shelby Cobra recipe half a decade before the first Cobra was made, but it never had the chance to succeed. Kirkistown Air Base, Northern Ireland, 1957. I hope I got that right. After the men had chased the cattle off the tarmac, they turned to their work. The big boar, straight six from a Jaguar D-type, barked to life, fitted in a chassis, a na fitty, fitted in a chassis naked, save for the engine, controls, and a seat. The American drove off, and the two Ulster-born engineers stood with arms folded. The cattle watched and chewed their cud. History and heartbreak were in the making. The chassis was cutting edge. It had a 90-inch wheelbase and fully independent suspension all around. Motorcycle-derived dampers and double wishbones up front and a D-Dion rear... D-Dijon, perhaps? Rear axle with a limited slip differential. The brakes were girling discs. The rears mounted inboard and the engine sat aft of the front axle. The steering was rack and pinion. Two turns lock to lock. It needed only a body to be equal of the cars that race at Le Mans. The two Ulstermen, hopefully I got that right, were Noel Hillis and Malcolm McGregor. Both were experienced racers in their own right, on two wheels and four. The American was Bill Devon, a SoCal hot-rodding and racing legend and a contemporary and friendly rival to the likes of Dean Moon, Max Balchowski, and Carol Shelby. The chassis was a prototype. The partnership would go on to create the Devon SS, a California-made body, a chassis built in Belfast, and a 290-horsepower Chevrolet 283 cubic inch V8 under the hood. Half a decade later, Carroll Shelby would produce the first 289 cubic inch narrow-bodied Cobra. A Corvette-powered Devon SS could eat a Cobra for breakfast, fried up with bacon, eggs, sausages, black pudding, potato falls, and soda bread. Actually, that might be a slight exaggeration, but the Devon was slightly lighter than the Shelby, slightly more powerful, and had more accurate steering. Period testing shows the Devon SS achieving acceleration times as quick as 4.8 seconds to 60 miles per hour, about a second quicker than the Cobra. That this kind of world-beating performance would hail from Northern Ireland seems unlikely, but it's not. Northern Iron, as its people call the place, has always punched above its, punched above its weight in motorsport. 
Ask Patty Hopkirk about the tin of black market caviar he ferried from behind the Iron Curtain while winning the 1964 Monte Carlo Rally, or stand on the mountain of, or stand on the mountain at the Isle of Man TT and see that the only statue there is of motorcycling legend Joey Dunlop, the King of the Roads. The people of Ulster are bright, blunt, stubborn, and fearless. They love calling literally everything we, and they love going fast. Hillis and McGregor came from this stock. Both were in the textile trade. Hillis the owner of a company, McGregor a lead engineer and employee. The latter was much younger, but the men bonded over racing. Hillis was a committed enthusiast with deep pockets, owning Bugattis and Maseratis, and winning the first race held in post-war Ireland at Ballyclare in 1946. Malcolm started out racing motorcycles. Both men thought they could create a car that could take on the world's best. Having built the chassis, they sent a letter to Bill Devon. At the time, Devon was the world's foremost builder of fiberglass car bodies. Because of its later association with shoddy kit cars, fiberglass is sometimes regarded with disdain. But think instead of Bruce Myers and his Manx showing up and setting records on the dunes. In the 50s and 60s, fiberglass was lightweight and effective. It's rumored that Myers took inspiration and advice from Bill Devon. Bill Devon was something of a mechanical genius. As a boy, he built a go-kart out of a metal road sign and the motor from a gas-powered washing machine. He worked on the production line for the Douglas A-20 Havoc and was a mechanic in the U.S. Navy during World War II, working on amphibious assault transports. He owned an ex-Phil Hill Ferrari 212, which he raced in the early 50s and traveled to Modena with Luigi Chinetti, or Chinetti perhaps, the founder of NART. There, Devon found the Ferrari 250mm he had ordered to race at Le Mans wasn't ready yet. He bought a different Ferrari, brought it back to the US, and eventually sold it, taking a small Deutsche Bonnet in trade. This he modified with mo motorcycle parts, inventing the very first overhead cam overhead camshaft timing belt in the process. He did not patent the technology. Devon Enterprises was formed in 1954 and began selling fiberglass bodies shortly thereafter. The, patent, the pattern was lifted from a Scaglietti body little Italian car called the Ermini 357, I'm going to have to look that car up, and could be fitted to the frames of various cars from MGs to Fords. The business grew along with Devon's reputation. His D-Specials, which he fitted with 1600cc industrial application Porsche engines, were very successful in racing. Until Porsche found out and told Devon's supplier to cut him off. In the hands of racer A.K. Miller, Devon Bodied Specials won the Pikes Peak Hill Climb six times between 1958 and 1966. When Bill Devon returned from testing Hillis's, no, from testing Hillis and McGregor's chassis, he was splattered with cow crap, but up to high dough, as the Irish would say. This was the foundation he had been looking for to build a ground-up car with his name on it. The men formed a partnership. A modified 92-inch uh, inch version of the chassis would be built by Devonshire Enterprises in Belfast, then shipped to California to be fitted with Corvette running gear, with the engines modified with output from Bill's friend Dean Moon. In April of 1959, road and track covered the Devon SS. We rode. Devon's plans are to produce enough cars, 150, to meet SCCA production requirements. If this comes about, the GT Ferrari and Corvette owners can kiss that first place cup goodbye. Imagine, if you will, the performance of a near 2,000-pound car, which the Devon is, with a 290-horsepower fuel-injection Corvette engine. 
The Devon SS was a Cobra before the Cobra. Though it was built as a streetcar, some examples had success racing against the likes of the Maserati Birdcage. There are rumors that GM bought one and took it apart, looking for clues to apply to the next generation Corvette. But the SS, unfortunately, wasn't a financial success. The price of $5,950 was less than the cars ended, ended up costing to make. Material suppliers like PPG demanded bulk orders that far exceeded what a small outfit like Devon could afford, and there were delays. Hillis took a dangerous financial risk, extending his other businesses to pour funds into his passion project. The engineering was there, but the marketing wasn't. Devon Enterprises went bankrupt, just as a large shipment of chassis arrived from Belfast. The shockwave of the financial loss echoed throughout Hillis' businesses, crippling them and wiping out his fortune. McGregor eventually took an offer to work for Ford, where he was quite successful. 16 Ostermate chassis in total, including the prototype, ended up in the US. A handful more remained in Europe. McGregor managed to hang on to one, but was never able to, to fulfill the dream of owning a finished example of the car he had engineered. Yet, thanks to the work of Devon enthusiast Kevin Callaghan, hopefully I got that right, and Craig Jones, that chassis has escaped obscurity. Just before the COVID pandemic, McGregor's chassis was purchased from his estate and shipped to Pennsylvania. Jones founded the Devon Registry a decade ago and is an expert and historian of the mark. Callaghan recently purchased the assets and rights of Devon Sports Cars LLC. He's helped other Devon owners source replacement parts for their cars and plans to display the Ulster chassis in his company's showroom in Abington, Pennsylvania. Or in Abington, PA. That might not be Pennsylvania. Bill Devon would go on to re-engineer the SS chassis and build a few updated examples in California. The Devon community at large is open and enthusiastic, but SS models are worth significant amounts and thus owners tend to be a bit secretive. How many completed cars exist and their providence is a bit tricky to navigate, but they're still out there. Before the Shelby Cobra, there was the Devon SS, a sliver of automotive history and a story of a dream slipping through fingers. Three men standing in a disused airfield just outside Belfast grins on their faces at the start of something. What might have been, but ultimately what was. What a story. Much longer than the first one we read and just as interesting. I really hope we start to see more of those Devons because it's such a cool car. It's, it's a Shelby Cobra. As they said, it's a Shelby Cobra before the Shelby Cobra, but had... 90-inch wheelbase, 283 cubic inch, 290 horsepower Chevrolet V8, independent suspension all the way around. Like, that car sounds way ahead of its time. Like, significantly ahead of its time. But it just goes to show that amazing cars don't always do well in the market. Amazing cars, they just don't always take off as much as they should. What other cars do you guys know of, though? That classic vintage sports cars that should have taken off more than they did. Let me know. But in any case, in the meantime, I hope you all enjoyed this episode. If you did, please make sure to like, comment, share, and consider... Wait, no, that's YouTube. Firstly, like the episode, share the episode, and follow the podcast. If you're watching the podcast on YouTube, then please like, comment, share, and consider subscribing. And if you do subscribe, please make sure to... Well, hey, if you consider subscribing and do actually subscribe, thank you a lot. I really do appreciate that. Make sure you hit the little notification bell and then all notifications so that you're notified every time I upload. If you want to listen to this podcast on the road, but you don't have a Want the Pod B mobile app, hey, no problem. Boot up wherever you get your podcast before you set off. Type in Cody's Car Conundrum and then choose the episode you want to listen to. I will see you all next time.
You've just listened to me probably ramble about some cars, if I'm being honest. If you've enjoyed me passionately talking about lumps of metal on wheels, then why don't you follow me on Twitter at CodyCar, C-O-N-U-N-D-R-M, or check out my website, www.codyscarconundrum.com, for articles and other car-related content. If you have any questions or would like to become a sponsor, send an email to drtaffy777 at gmail.com and put sponsor in the subject line. Make sure to follow me here or any other platform so you don't miss out on more full-throttle content. Thanks for listening. I'll see you all in the next episode.